0: Okay, Old Testament, Psalm 22. New Testament, Wednesday and Thursday, students, you'll know this, Galatians 3. On the playing field today, Doc and Julie Price, back from the DL. A long time in the trenches and some difficult health issues. They've passed that test with flying colors and they're back on the field today. Doc is playing shortstop. Julie's on second. Yes, do that. Welcome them back. That's quite a thing when when heaven recognizes that tests have come and the faith of the believers is purified by it and refined by it. It's always to the benefit of the church at large. Not to give you any heart palpitations, but Eric, are you finished with your first year at Fuller? Halfway through. Do you mind if we pray for you? I want Eric, this is Eric Diamond, if you'll stand up. I've had my attention on him for quite a bit. He's going to Fuller Theological Seminary, and he's been around for quite a while in the Word. He has a very bright future in the ministry of the Word of God, and in some capacity, and I know that. I want you to keep him in mind, and keep his face in mind. Now you know. I call him in my own, if you don't know this yet, but I call you a diamond in the rough, so... You're going to pray for him, right? Eric Diamond. Can you forget that name? Of course you can't. Galatians chapter 3. There's a ladies workshop today. it be the last one for a while, so make sure you get there. Tony Sadar has baked a lot of baked goods for that, so he he told me this morning. Because so, he can't go, so that's his way of making up for it. So... And also during the month of May, and this has been astonishing as you have been traveling under the banner that it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. Many of the goods that we are collecting for the Salvation Army Drive have been coming in, and I'm astonished as usual at your generosity. And keep them coming, because as far as I checked, it's still May, I think. May, still the month of May. Okay, I don't have time to look at calendars or clocks or do other things anymore. So, just kidding. To be the most benefit to you, I have to, in fact, I'm compelled to repeat some things. As Philippians three one says, to repeat is not grievous to me, Paul said. And in fact, for you, it means asphales, stability. It creates stability. And so there are eight points that have derived from our serious working over of Galatians chapter 3 in anticipation for a deeper exegetical study. Eight points. And I asked the audience if they wanted me to repeat Wednesday's message at the end of Wednesday. And a few enough raised their hands so that I said I should. And then Thursday, I said, should I repeat it again? And one hand was raised, Ralph Anders. So Ralph, a man without guile, raised his hand. That's enough. So I'm going to repeat eight salient, prominent principles in our advance of the word with some fortification and some refinement. Because these are things that you need to know, not only for your own assurance in Christ, but also in your ability to proclaim the word of God and preach the word of God and teach and explain it to a generation that's awash in propaganda and overcome by a refuge of lies, partly because this gospel this way of truth, as Second 2 Peter 2, 2 says, has been so distorted and misrepresented by false teachers that it has caused almost a whole generation to speak evil or to dismiss altogether the gospel. And that which is called the gospel, which they've heard, is quite often not the gospel. So we're trying to square that away by working over... And by that, I mean seriously studying Galatians chapter 3. And we want to go to verse 8 to start with. But be, while you're tuned in to Galatians 3.8, this is courtesy of Claudia Schaefer. Is she here today? She said, well, she sent this verse to Pam, and Pam showed it to me. It's from the Mirror Bible. New Testament and when I read this in Galatians 1, 9 to 10 I realized any minister of the gospel worth his salt has to have the same devotedness there's a big difference between devotion and obsession but this is the devotion that our beloved brother Paul demonstrated I thought this mirror Bible and very few translations get it right that's why I don't go by English translations because There are serious errors in almost all of them, and partly because of the commitment of the translators to a certain point of view, which skews their reading of the Scripture. That's why I go deep into the Greek. But this, I think, really captures the sense and paraphrases. If we were to call Paul, I think he might say, yeah, I I approve of that. That's, That's me. Galatians 1, 9 to 10, he says this. This again is the mirror Bible, New Testament. Galatians 1, 9 to 10. Let me be blatant, he said, and clear about this. Any gospel that does not emphasize the success of the cross is counterfeit and produces nothing but the curse. God is my complete persuasion. I answer to him alone, not anyone else. Christ employs me. I am addicted to his grace. Popular religious opinion will not influence me to compromise my message. That should probably be written on the mirror or on the computer, study computer or the notebooks of every Pastor, and every future pastor. Any gospel that does not emphasize the success of the cross is counterfeit. And if we're truly employed by Jesus Christ as his slave or his genuine servant, then we'll be committed to that cross and addicted to God's grace. That's the addiction that overcomes all other addictions. That is the addiction that overcomes and triumphs over and eliminates all other addictions. So don't protect, so-called, your children from this gospel. Expose them to it while you still have time. And young people should bear the yoke in their youth, according to Lamentations 3.27, the best time to get addicted to grace is when you're young, so that you can blow off the other addictions as you grow. So there are eight particular points that I'm repeating today, but with refinement and fortification. When I refine these principles, the result will be the refinement of your souls. And when I fortify these principles under the power of the Holy Spirit, your souls will also be fortified by understanding. And so I've backed up quite a bit. I've got quite a bit built up that I'm not going to teach on today. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. I want to start here because this has to be gone over, hammered out, ironed out, however you want to say it, but repetition my translation from the Greek text, Galatians 3 8. Now the Scripture, please note that the Scripture here is personified, and even as the Word is personified, of course, in John 1 1. Now the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, or we could say set right, deliver by liberating the Gentiles by faithfulness that's ek pistios. that means the faithfulness of christ as we know from other passages and many passages that we've studied now the scripture foreseeing that god would rectify or we could say justify or deliver or save the gentiles that's all of the gentiles as we're going to see all the pagans by faithfulness that's the faithfulness of christ preach the gospel in advance To Abraham, please, if you haven't noticed this already, please notice that these next words are the gospel in its most concise form preached by the scripture before the scripture was written down, which shows that scripture is more than something written. The scripture proclaimed the gospel to Abraham before there was scripture written down. And so we say, what does the scripture say? We mean more than what is written in between the pages of two leather-bound covers. The scripture foreseeing that God would ju- justify the Gentiles in Acts 11, 17 and 18, the leaders in Jerusalem were rejoicing because God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. And it was indicated by Paul by Peter's proclamation of the gospel at the home of Sergeant Major Cornelius. And speaking of Sergeant Major, I'd like to wish happy Armed Forces Day to all who have served in the military. It was yesterday, and then next week is the Memorial Day. And yes, Mike, you can wear your uniform. And you're just doing that because you know it still fits. But anyone can wear their, their uniforms in honor of the military service and in Memorial. For those who have served unto the ultimate sacrifice, which to me is an honor of Jesus Christ. Now, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faithfulness, he explains it later to be the faithfulness of Christ, preached the gospel in advance to Abraham, saying, So we better pay attention right here, because this is the gospel. In you, all the nations, all the nations, And we could say all the Gentiles. That means all without exception. All the nations. In fact, before Israel was a nation, God made this promise to Abraham. So it included Israel, the nation. Israel is sometimes seen as a nation elect, select, and set apart from the nations. But it's also seen from time to time as one of the nations. In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. This is from Genesis twelve three and eighteen eighteen. It's repeated. That's why Paul says promises sometimes. He's not referring to several promises made to Abraham, but one promise repeated by God to Abraham. Notice the word repeated. So God is I am that I am, he repeats. And I am what I am by the grace of God. So we're all I am that I am juniors. Even Popeye got that together. But I think they canceled Popeye because there's too much violence. He punches Brutus out every week. So. But, they, but he would say, I am what I am. But anyways, what do you say, Paul? I am what I am by the grace of God. In you all the nations will be blessed. Period. It's over, end quote. That's the gospel. What is it? It's an unconditional promise made to Abraham. There's no condition. It doesn't say in you all the nations will be blessed if they fulfill certain conditions of the Torah that's coming up 430 years later when the scripture will be written. It doesn't say that. The promise comes first. It's unconditional. The law comes as a prosthesis. We saw that in the Greek word prostithomy. It comes as a prosthesis 430 years later. But after the law was given, then Christ came. And when Christ came, faith came. We're going to see that Christ and the faith, which is faithfulness, came at the same time. Had an advent into history at the same time. The law then could not act as a blockade to the promise. In fact, the law was added for transgression's sake. It not only defined transgressions, but caused transgressions to increase so that the grace would superabound all the much more and we would become. I'm addicted to grace because it abounds much more than sin. It outran sin in my life. I didn't give up any sins. I don't have that kind of testimony. I just had God's grace run faster than my sins in my life. And it's still happening. Grace keeps overcoming. Grace keeps overcoming. So you might as well face it. You're addicted to God's love demonstrated as grace. Never mind. I'm sure you didn't get that reference because that's worldly music reference. Addicted to love. Never mind. So. In you, all the nations will be blessed. Later on, Paul refines this, and we'll see this. I plan. I'm starting to plan to do a whole exegesis of Galatians. Paul refines this and said, more importantly, it's not to Abraham, but and to your seed. He throws the ball a little further and says, more importantly, to your seed, in your seed. And Genesis twenty-two eighteen brings this very clear, brings it home very strongly. To spermati singular seed the hebrew backs it up even zera zera singular seed in your seed all the nations will be blessed and the seed singular is christ so the gospel is in christ all the nations will be blessed so what do you think paul means when he says in romans 1 5 that he was given grace an apostleship or that his apostleship was defined by grace to bring about obedience to the faith in all the nations among all the nations, John makes a similar claim. in John, when he says there was a man named John who came from God, he was not from the beginning. He had a point of beginning and his message was so that all would believe There's going to be a nice reconciliation coming up here between Christ's faithfulness and human faith. Very nice reconciliation. I made a divide for one reason. To make it emphatic that the source of our salvation is the fidelity of Jesus Christ and that the source of Christ's fidelity is God's own faithfulness and God's own faithfulness is God's own unconditional, unrestricted love so in your seed all the nations will be blessed that's you know what that is I mentioned that last week the gospel therefore is an unconditional promise with a universal horizon the universal horizon all the nations that means all the nations not in the future but as we'll see all the nations from all of human history And that includes Israel as a nation, so that includes all mankind. The eventual, as Romelli made very clearly in her Apocatastasis book, eventual inclusion of all humanity in this salvific work. Paul's gospel is a radical revelation, a radical apocalypse of God's saving righteousness. God's righteousness, the key word in Romans, dikaiosunei is not an attribute of his being, but an act performed by his unconditional love. We're going to see this unfold in Psalm 22 in just a moment. But I'm so far just doing exegesis or commentary. Now, the scripture foreseeing that God would rectify the Gentiles or liberate them, that is, from sin and death by giving them justifying life, by faithfulness. Preached the gospel in advance to Abraham saying in you, all the nations will be blessed. Why does that not have a condition? Cause it's an unconditional promise, but he's already laid out the reason why the promise is unconditional because the source of that liberation is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Romans three 26 puts it even clearer. So then those who are from faithfulness he uses that word again, ek pistios, coming from faithfulness or belonging to faithfulness or coming from the source of Christ's faithfulness. We could translate it: those who are from faithfulness. That means the faithfulness of Christ, the singular seed of Abraham, which will be make, made very clear by the time we get to Galatians three twenty-three and four are blessed with faithful Abraham. So then, those who are from faithfulness are blessed with faithful Abraham. The teachers in Galatia said, you know who's blessed with faithful Abraham? Since Abraham was circumcised and circumcised the members of his male household, he, you are only the people that are blessed with Abraham if you're circumcised. And I said that facetiously, but with a little shock value that all of us could use on a Sunday morning. That's like God saying, I'll give you this free gift. But he says to the males in Galatia, the pagans, I will give you this free gift if you go have someone cut your penis. See, you don't get it. Is it too much of a shock to say that? God is such a good God that if you're being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more God gives good gifts to his children? He doesn't give a scorpion. He gives bread. And so imagine God saying, I'm going to give you this good gift if first you have this foreskin of your male member removed. That sounds like anything but grace. That's what these teachers were teaching. If you're going to be of the people of Abraham, the males there have to submit to circumcision. And you'll receive the blessing of Abraham through compliance with the law of Moses. But that's a condition. That's a contract. The law couldn't stand as a blockade between the unconditional promise and the coming of Christ. God says, I'm giving you this gift. He doesn't put any conditions on it. I'm giving you this gift through Jesus Christ. No conditions on it. If you're going to be addicted to grace, there's your first shot and it's free. It's free. The only thing is we're not going to charge after every other hit. Every other hit is free too. Every time the word of God comes, it strengthens your addiction to grace. Some people don't like that because way down deep, there's this little thing that they think is a little thing but it's really a subterranean ocean of their own merit and they want to have that prop and they want people to give them props and they want kudos and they want this and they want that so those who are from faithfulness are blessed with faithful abraham you know where paul's headed he's headed toward you know who the real israel of god is it's the people who are the beneficiaries of the faithfulness of the Messiah to Israel, period, over and out. So, here's the, here's the eight points. Only seven on Thursday, eight now. Reiteration. The gospel, which the scripture preached in advance to Abraham, was an unconditional promise with a universal horizon. I didn't just come to the truth of a universal horizon of salvation. I came to it from an appreciation of the depth of the cross of Christ. The more you appreciate the depth of the cross of Christ, the more you're likely to see the breadth of the love of Christ or the extent and the impact of that cross. When Paul said that the love of Christ is, that you would come to know the love of Christ that passes mere human ways of knowing. He said that you would know the height of it, the depth of it, the length of it, and the breadth of it. For me, it began with the depth of it. For 40 years, I've been plumbing the depths of the cross of Christ. That's what all my study has been. That's what all the study of the word is. Plumb the depths of the cross. And when you get to a certain point, Not through studying only, but through suffering and studying. Not through studying only, but through living and suffering and studying and being blessed by God and understanding grace. You appreciate the depth of the cross and it's only from that low depth, not a high height, that you see the breadth of the salvation right from the center and the heart of the gospel, the cross of Christ by which he became a curse for us and thus removed the curse of the law, right from that heart and center, and only from that heart and center and from a deep appreciation of it can there be a deep appropriation of the horizon. And so don't fault anyone who can't agree with you about the breadth. Just pray that they'll understand the depth of the cross. That's the only way to see it. So, the gospel which the scripture preached in advance to Abraham was an unconditional promise with a universal scope or horizon. The promise was spoken unconditionally to Abraham's seed, which is Christ. Christ is the seed. It goes all the way back to the Protoevangelium in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. They say that's where the gospel was first preached. I disagree. The gospel was first preached in Genesis 1.1 where the scripture says nrk which means in christ god created the heavens and the earth that's not just the beginning that's the end game of god in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth is referring to the eschatological beginning when all things in the heavens and the earth will be united in christ and brought to its full totality in christ when was the gospel first preached not when god spoke to the serpent and said you will crush his heel, but he will crush your head. The seed of the woman will crush your head. That's true. That's the gospel. That's the defeat of Satan. But the gospel was preached first in Genesis 1 1, where the Greek text says NRK and RK, A R C H E. The RK is Christ. He is the beginning and the end. So God's whole game plan is to create the heavens and the earth. That's all of creation. In union with his son Jesus Christ. That's where this is going. And by the time we get to Galatians 4 7. Which I'm going to break off from. You'll understand. The promise was spoken unconditionally to Abraham's seed who is Christ. The promise is that all the nations including Israel. Will be blessed in Abraham's seed. In union with Christ in other words. So fortifying this point, Psalm 22, look there for a moment. I'm just, I just had time to pick this up today, this morning, in fact, around 8.30. So I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and then I read the Greek text very cursively, or cursorily, but in Psalm 22, remember, who is spoken of here is the same one who is spoken of and referred to in Psalm 22, one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Christ on the cross who could not preserve his life from death. He could not because he was addicted to the obedience of God to the extent of death by crucifixion. He came to lay his life down. And so at the end of the psalm, it says all the ends of the earth. That means all the earth, even to its extent, its great extent, its extremities will remember and turn to the Lord. This takes in not only a spatial ends of the earth, but a historical and temporal ends of the earth. This is referring to all humankind. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before you. This echoes Psalm Rather, it echoes Philippians. Every knee will genuflect to you, bow to you. Every tongue will acknowledge. For kingship belongs to Yahweh. He rules over the nations. That's Jesus Christ also ruling right now at the right hand of the Father. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. That's people that have died, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, that very depressing thing that people quote at funerals. I never quote it because that's the point of a person who is disillusioned with life who said that. That's all we are is ashes. We go to ashes. We're only dust. We go to dust. The, this says that all those who go down to the dust will kneel before the Lord, which means... They won't be dust anymore. I've never seen dust kneel. Those that have died will kneel before him. Even those who cannot preserve, even the one, please notice this, this is a key reference to Christ. Bow before him, who? The one who cannot preserve his life. The one human being, the man Christ Jesus. This isn't this man's army where you can be all you can be. This is the man Christ Jesus army where you're being what you already are through Jesus Christ. It's a different army. It's the most important army on the earth. I'll be teaching on that soon too. We'll be calling it this man's army, but it will be this man, the man Christ Jesus army. He's the one. Everyone's going to bow to the one who could not preserve his life he saved others, why can't he save himself? Because he can't save himself. He can't preserve his own life. To this end, he said, I was born, that I might lay my life down. I came not to be served, but to serve and to offer my life as a ransom for many. Many meaning all, as we've seen in 1 Timothy 2.6, compared with Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20.28, 20, along with Romans 5.18-19. In connection with Isaiah 53 11, LX. By the suffering of my servant, many will be justified. And Paul said, that means all. Paul, what does many mean? It means all. In Romans 5.18. That's what it means. So all who prosper on earth will eat and bow down, all those who get down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. All the nations, dead and living, will bow their knee to the one who could not preserve his life. He couldn't because he came to offer it. And then he was raised from the dead and exalted. Remember my sister Sandy's text, which I referred to this week, which Larry, my friend, said was far deeper than anything I've ever said. She said, Christianity, the only story where the hero dies for the villain. That's pretty good. That'll do it. I'm done. It is true. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were hostile, while we were collected as a a monolith of humanity before the cross, Christ died. How much more now being reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Descendants. In fact, this is again singular. I, I I disagree with the translation here. It says my seed here's the singular seed again in psalm twenty-two thirty. my seed will serve him now we're going to see that the seed christ has also a corporate unity you being many are one christ we're going to see how that christ as an individual is is also Christ as a corporate collective entity. That corporate collective entity now is the church and eventually is all humankind to fulfill the gospel preached by the scripture to Abraham 1,800 years before the cross and at least 400 years before the scripture was in writing. So, my seed will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. I use that as a prophecy for our time. The next generation will be told this gospel. True gospel. They will come and tell a people yet to be born. Listen to this last phrase. About his righteousness. About his righteousness. Well, what is his righteousness? There's a dash here and it's rightly Revealed, I saw the Septuagint translation. His righteousness, that is, what he has done. The righteousness of God, what he has done. The righteousness of God, what he has done. What has he done? Well, I'll just tell you this. When it was done, Jesus cried out or spoke quietly, more likely, to tell us that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't record that. No, John did because he was at the foot of the cross and he overheard the word of Jesus saying, it is done, which means it is made. What? The new creation. It's done. It's finished. God's righteousness was enacted in Christ on the cross. That's why there's no conditions for the blessing to be upon all the nations. So, wow, we're at point two. See what I did, I refined it a little bit. Point two, the singular seed, and I think most of you have grasped this, but just in case, and even if you have, it won't hurt. The singular seed in whom all the nations will be blessed is the same Christ whom Paul elsewhere calls the second man or the last Adam. Why only two men? Because there are only two human beings in human history that were bearers of humankind's destiny. They were two bearers of destiny. They carried in themselves the destiny of all of humankind. So, our famous verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam, all die, because Adam bore a destiny of all humankind of death. So in Christ, all will be made alive. We have that will be, we have that future, which kind of correlates with the future. All the nations will be blessed in him. All the nations will be blessed in the seed means exactly the same thing that all who die in Adam will be made alive in Christ. Is there a different Christ? Then the same Christ in whom all humankind, that's all who were ever in Adam, that's all humankind, will be made alive, is the same Christ who is the seed in whom all the nations will be blessed. Is there two different Christs? Is there one Christ? Who are all the nations? All humankind. Who are all in Adam who die and all in Christ who are made alive? All of humankind. There is an eventuality about this, but we'll see that. However you interpret these verses, I say to my friends, some of whom were ordained around the same time I was and who are attacking the receivers of this message. Even recently I heard, I mean severely attacking. Of course, the theologians that I'm speaking of have not been doing what I've been doing, gutting it out in the arena and being in the bleeding edge. They've just been sitting around drinking wine and talking about theology. So they haven't had time to increase the depth of the cross. You say, why are you doing that? Because there's a time when you slap your enemies a little bit, just like Paul did in Galatians. Paul, you think it's okay if I do this? I did. The teachers, I wish that those who were telling you to be circumcised would be cut off altogether. There's two ways you can interpret that cut off from the people of God or complete the circumcision with a castration, which is probably what he said. But I would say to them gently, really, honestly, in friendship and love, I would say, however you interpret these two verses in first Corinthians 15:22 and this essential gospel in Galatians 3, 8, you do have to at least consider that little word all, don't you? Just at least consider it. If it doesn't convince you of universal horizon, at least it might broaden your horizon. Maybe instead of this much, maybe this much. Because right now your horizon is this much. And believe me, I'm not just reacting. I still have a slow heartbeat. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. I'm just answering something that's been going on for years. So I didn't just impulsively react against it. But I'm protecting certain people including a friend of mine who was attacked viciously at dinner over a dinner for this, for believing this. But he said, well, if his answer was this, if you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more God whose children we all are. I said, you know what? That's something like what Jesus would have said. He's a good man. But it's tough to be out there. Third point because A, the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And promises doesn't mean that there were several ways that God said it, He said it the same way several times. Because the promise was made to Abraham and to his seed, and B, because the seed is Christ, my conclusion is then the gospel is all about Jesus. Whose name means, and whose name is, salvation. For no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. However, one interprets it. And Peter says, there is salvation in no other name. Fourth point, because A, those who are of faithfulness, in 3 7 and 3 9, of Galatians, those who are ek pistios. In Romans three twenty six, it says, "God is just while He justifies those who are of the faithfulness of Jesus." There, He explicitly states what He doesn't mention here: the faithfulness is that of Jesus Christ. Those who are of faithfulness are blessed. That's Galatians three seven. You got that? All those of faithfulness are blessed. And because B, all the nations will be blessed in Christ Galatians three eight, then we could still be reasonable. Or let's say it this way: It's not unreasonable to at least consider that all humanity will be the eventual beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. As John, we began to receive the hint. At least I did in John one sixteen of his fullness from his fullness from his fullness which we could say is the full obedience of his faithfulness to the father we have all received even grace after grace ad infinitum also romans 326 he justifies those who are of the faithfulness of jesus who are those who are of the faithfulness of jesus They are the ungodly. The whole thing that's going on right now, the whole cosmic trial, the whole objection by the accuser is all about what do you mean God justifies the ungodly? What about... And they'll point to the worst malefactor they can think of in history. And the reason they do that is because, as I said again this week, they magnify the heinousness of evil done by men above the omnipotent love of God demonstrated in Christ on the cross. And that very objection springs from an ocean of subterranean arrogance. You don't have to say that to them. I'm just saying where it is. And they think they can dismiss your whole gospel. Yeah, well, what about Stalin? What about Hitler? They always bring Hitler up. They think more about Hitler than they do about Jesus Christ. And that's because the central tenet of many of these theological people, the central tenet of their Christian faith is the existence of an eternal hell. And if you go away from that, they go away from fellowship with you. You're a heretic because you've gone away from the central tenet. If that's the central tenet of your faith, you don't have the Christian faith. You do not have the Christian faith. Let me say it this way. You are not a Christian. How do you like that one? Take that with a grain of salt. No, take it with a bucket of salt. That's a facetious way of speaking. So, because all those who are of the faithfulness are blessed, and because all the nations will be blessed, it's not unreasonable to at least consider that all humanity will be the eventual beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, you've got that one pretty well. Fifth point, Christ's coming. This is something that's going to come out in Galatians 3.23, especially. Christ's coming into history, that includes incarnation, life of vicarious obedience, and obedience to the extent of passion and death on the cross, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. All those things are the Christ event, and every element of them are saving events. The coming of Christ is exactly the same as what Paul calls the coming or the apocalypse of faith or faithfulness. So he's not just talking about people having faith like faith in God like Abraham's faith faith Abraham's faith wasn't in Jesus Christ. It was in God. And so he is a paradigm not of faith in Christ for justification but in trust in God in duplication of Christ's fidelity to the father. That's more coming up in Romans 4 but the fifth point is Christ coming and the coming of faithfulness are the same event when Christ came. The faithfulness came. We're saved by Christ. We're saved by the faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ, who is the Savior of the world. So Christ's coming and the coming of faithfulness, and this, again, is something I don't expect you to get yet because we're going to see it exegetically in Galatians 3.23 and 24 and following compared with John 1.17. Sixth point, promises plural, which, again, is the promise restated several times promises plural promises plural in Galatians three sixteen correlates with promises plural in second Peter 1 4 very important very important this is the Petrine connection second Peter 1 4 says in essence by God's fulfillment in Christ of the promises that's the promise made and repeated to Abraham and to his seed we That's the church now, those who have obtained equally invaluable faith with the early church, and eventually all humanity become partakers of the divine nature. Why? Because the blessing promised to Abraham and to his seed is the blessing of participation in the divine nature which is only by receiving the Holy Spirit. And so the promise and the Spirit are one, the promised Holy Spirit. This is a little tricky. We'll have to iron this one out a little more, but I'll say it again. Promises in Galatians 3.16 correlates with promises in Second Peter 1.4, meaning that the blessing that is promised is participation in the divine nature, which ultimately it can be proven by the Scripture and in the Scripture that participation with the divine nature is not only the heritage and the destiny of all humankind, but it is the heritage and the destiny of all of creation. I'm making everything new. And to be new means to be in Christ in Second Corinthians 5.17. So when God makes everything new, he makes everything to be in Christ. That's blessing. Again, the blessing promised is that we all become sharers in Jesus Christ's existence and partakers in Trinitarian fellowship. Douglas Campbell said it the right way. We are grafted on to the double trajectory of Christ, his downward trajectory to death. I've been crucified with Christ. We were buried with him. We were resurrected with him. We are mapped onto or grafted onto the trajectory or the history of Christ and his downward trajectory and then his upward trajectory, resurrection and enthronement. And that's what the Holy Spirit does when he baptizes us into union with Christ. Seventh, salvation may be concisely defined then as one word, participation. Salvation may be concisely defined as participation this is illustrated it's not caused but it is pictorially illustrated best by baptism and of course the real baptism that we're talking about is as many as have been baptized into christ not into water but into christ how by the spirit But the baptism into water is illustrative of the point because the the baptized or the baptizans or the people that are baptized go down into the water to demonstrate they're being mapped onto or grafted onto the downward trajectory of Christ. They come up in resurrection mapped onto the upward trajectory of Christ but then they changed their clothes they put on dry new clothes and therefore galatians 3:27 as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ and that means two things you are now having an identity with Christ and a destiny of Christ and two you've been clothed for combat in the ap- apocalyptic eschatological warfare You've put on the armor of God. All these things are coming up more and more and we'll see them. So the eighth thing, and we'll close with this, the promise correlates elegantly. And this I haven't gotten from any theologians I've read, but the promise correlates elegantly. And here's where you have the Ephesians and Colossians connection with Galatians and Romans. This is where Ephesians and Colossians comes in. The promise correlates elegantly. It's an elegant correlation with what is called the mystery of God's intent and his unstoppable determination to bring all things to their totality in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 and 11 and Colossians, especially Colossians one twenty. So let me say it again just to reiterate. The promise or promises, the same promise reiterated over and over again, correlates elegantly with the mystery of God's will and with his inescapable, unstoppable determination to bring all things universally to their totality in Christ. That's Ephesians and Colossians. That's the message of both of these, but especially Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. And with God's intent to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth... Through the peace that he has made by the blood of christ 's cross that 's a rich and full statement in Colossians one twenty compared with galatians six fourteen to fifteen etc So at the heart of the matter in Galatians, especially in Galatians, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. only in Galatians does he simply call it the cross and it encompasses everything. He speaks of the word of cross. In First Corinthians, but Galatians is where he hits the heart of the matter. So I'm going to close with how I began. And so thank you, Claudia, for this. The Mirror Bible, New Testament, Galatians 1 9 to 10, speaking of the blood of Christ's cross and the peace that was made there, by which God will reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, in himself. Let me be blatant and clear about this. Any gospel that does not emphasize the success of the cross is counterfeit and produces nothing but the curse. God is my complete persuasion. I answer to him alone, not anyone else. Christ employs me. I am addicted to his grace. Popular religious opinion will not influence me to compromise my message. Father, may this be realized in all who proclaim the gospel, in all who are ambassadors of Christ, which is all of us. May it be especially true of those who preach the gospel as a vocation and as a calling. We ask this in Christ's name. May you please, Father, because I understand my weakness. I understand the strengthlessness of being able to convince. I pray that your Holy Spirit will convince the hearers of these things which a man cannot persuade people of and that you will enlighten the hearers with a light that can't come from human struggle or human ability to communicate. So bring to our hearts, the inarticulable articulation of the shocking saving revelation of your righteous act in Christ for all.